0: You are listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lasseter, three time founder turned investor. Join us to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Join us to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Join us to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Welcome to Startups for Good. On today's episode, my guest is Nathaniel Manning. He has a background working at startups, nonprofits and government, leveraging technology to accomplish a mission. Before I dive into that, I wanted to give you an update on the Giving Circle. This is the group of Startup for Good listeners who participate in pulling our money together to support tech nonprofit startups. So for this quarter, We're supporting immigrants like us. You can find out more about them at immigrationhelp.org. Their mission is to help immigrants find freedom, opportunity, and love in the United States without the high cost of an attorney. So they provide free software and content to assist in filing immigration paperwork and getting through the whole process. Think of it as a turbo tax for immigration. The team has experience in similar models like Upsolve, which worked on bankruptcy, And they've got strong earned media and SEO ratings. They've just started to serve clients. So they're at the right stage for us. They haven't raised much money. They're still seeking their own 501c3 tax exempt status and are currently sponsored by the Social Good Fund. So click on over to startusforgood.com, giving circle on the header, and you can join and support great organizations like immigrants like us. Back to our guest for this week. Nat is the co-founder and COO of Kettle, a machine learning powered reinsurer that protects people from increasing climate change crises. He previously led Ushahidi, the world's largest open source data platform for crisis response. And there he helped scale the Ushahidi platform to over 200 countries, gathering over 10 million firsthand reports. Before that, he was presidential innovation fellow for open data, and the first Chief Data Officer for USAID. And he's been part of the founding teams of technology startups like Brick and fellow AI and is on the board of Project Wayfinder. I think you'll enjoy this, so stay tuned. Welcome to Startups for Good. So glad to have you on the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Miles.
0: Yeah, I'm really excited to dive in. You have such an interesting and varied background working across government, NGO, and now for-profit startups. I'm so curious about the themes that you see between those, the differences, and how you have walked this journey of so many mission-driven organizations. So I'm almost overwhelmed where to start. <laughs> I, I, think, mm-hmm. I think what would be most interesting, given that we have a strong connection around mapping for social good, you with Ushahidi and me with C-Click Fix, perhaps that's where we start. I'd love to hear how you got involved, a little bit more about the organization and then I'll have some questions for you.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and, uh, and thanks again for having me. Um, psyched to be here. So Ushahidi, it was late 2011, uh, and I I just moved to the Bay Area and was in one of these programs all about how, how technology was gonna solve all the problems in the world, you know, all the, all the big problems like water and energy and, and all these kind of things. And, and a lot of these problems were facing sort of the developing world particularly. And there were a lot of great speakers at this event, at this program, but, but you know, one of them really struck me. It was, uh, it was Juliana Rotish, one of the co-founders of Ushahidi, uh, as, as someone who really, you know, in that classic design thinking type mentality of, you know, you, you gotta, you want to know your user, know the problem. This was someone who actually was, was from the developing world well, from Kenya and had developed a, a, a technology company. Uh, organization that was that was solving problems there uh and that was you know breaking ground and doing something that that nobody else had had done in the rest of the world and i just i thought that was really inspiring uh, at the intersection of things that i was working on and and wanted to work on such uh, these you know, technologies that were solving big problems in the world and so instead of you know going off and trying to create my own thing at that time i i said hey you know, Juliana, what, what could I do to help you? And being that it was an, an open source software company and, and organization, I uh, I started volunteering and doing work and then uh, was asked to come join Ushahidi to lead the, the business development and business strategy team uh, and really think about a, a monetization process for this tool that was not ad-based, was open source and predominantly served, you know, those in, in need. So that was a... Uh, a very challenge, a, a really exciting challenge. You know, how, how do you do this when you're not going to sell licenses and you're not going to sell ads, which is 99.9% of technology is finance. So I thought that seemed like a, an exciting prospect. And so joined the team uh, at the end of 2011 and was was more or less involved with Ushahidi um, until, until 2019 with a, a couple other stops along the way. It was really powerful. It was just drawn by the mission to help marginalized people raise their voice and, and get the help they need
0: and it started out of a disputed presidential election right
1: That's exactly right it started you know Ushahidi is a is a tool to essentially let you understand what's happening on the ground it's a, it's a it's a crowdsourcing software platform modeled architecturally similar to sort of wordpress every every deployment is a the word we use deployment instead of blog or website and everyone's its own instance and what you're essentially doing is crowdsourcing information from people as well as trying to find the signal through the noise of, of social media. So you're originally, you know, looking at RSS feeds, SMS, email, Twitter, uh, et cetera, then geolocating and timestamping them to understand what happened when and where Uh, it's now been used over 200,000 times uh, and predominantly for sort of many different ways, the way a blog can be written about many different things, but the three most well-known ones are, are election monitoring crisis response and uh, and human rights reporting, and and that's partly because that very first instance, uh, that very first use by Juliana, by Eric, by David, by, by Ori, the, the founders, was in 2008 in, in Kenya. Uh, and Ushahidi, by the way, means witness or testimony in Swahili. And they uh, they were all bloggers. The election is very close, you know, extremely close. It was a disputed election, and so then the two sides begin to begin to fight. And essentially, there was a bunch of human rights abuses during that time, thousands of people killed, and you know, I think about 600,000 people displaced. Uh, and, and what was a very sort of a shining star of democracy on, on the African continent uh, had this, this really troubled election. And so the citizens took it upon themselves to say, what, what's happening on the ground? How do we keep people safe and be able to create a transparent record of, of what's happening here?
0: Right. And I think we started C-Click Fix about the same time that Ushahidi got started. And I wonder what it was that caused these kinds of mapping with a open, crowdsourced feel to them, these sort of mapping tools to get going. And I wonder if it was something about the availability of GIS tools opening up, being better APIs. Do you know?
1: It's a great question. I, I mean, I think... That's part of it. Um, you know, I think, I think you're right. Like the ability to suddenly put data onto a map was, was a little, I mean, now it's incredibly easy, but it, you know, it's just a little bit easier than that compared to time before. Uh, I mean, I think the other thing, you know, even that was still kind of early days of, you know, mapping being something that was much more of an academic product, like Esri, right. To, um, to becoming something that was, you know, you started, you know, like having Google maps out there. And, but, you know, I think the other thing that was happening at that time too, right. It's it's all sort of changed now, but it was that those very early days of social media and social media, I think at the time was really being seen as this, you know, this force for good, you know, getting voices that were traditionally unheard and the ability to kind of find that signal through the noise there and uh, get out raise those new voices was, was really inspiring. So I think that was part of, part of the Zeitgeist moment as well.
0: Mm -hmm. And what were some of the biggest challenges of running a tech nonprofit?
1: Yeah, I think one of the challenges and certainly one of the hardest things I think is, is what, what happens kind of in in any of these organizations that are trying to be impact driven, uh, but also be able to keep the lights on. Right. And uh, there's, there's different pathways to achieve that. You know, to your first question, it's something that I've spent a lot a career sort of looking at and thinking about from different perspectives. You know, being structured as a nonprofit, but, but being essentially a, a tech company, right? And with 30 people that were, you know, two thirds engineers, and the, the challenges were often, you know, how, how are we doing and making more impact, but struggling with uh, being able to make enough money? Saying, hey, I want to be able to give this product away for free, but I don't want to, I don't want to, we can't collect data on, on this community of people to be able to serve the mats. That's not going to work or it's open source. So we're not going to be able to license the product. So how are we going to be able to essentially fund ourselves enough to keep the product Working and updated, and you know, as folks know technology goes stale. It goes stale very quickly, so you have to constantly be keeping it up to date and working. So, how do you just fund that and fund that that core work uh, to be able to grow and make make more impact, and then, but also do that in a in a sustainable way that is is fair and uh, and equitable.
0: What were the methods that you considered aside from straight donation? Did you look at dual licensing?
1: Yeah, we looked at. We looked at everything, uh, and and played with a lot of a lot of stuff, and, and learned a lot. So w- one of the main ways we were funded over time, and I kind of graphed this differently over time. So at the beginning, it was predominantly foundation-based funding, particularly, you know, foundations that were excited by innovation, by technology being used in the traditionally kind of humanitarian and development fields. All right, so that was sort of the the main one, and then but those grants, right? They they disappear over time. Even, you know, you might have a six-year grant. We had, you know, kind of six years of funding from some of these foundations, but foundations are uh, typically don't want to fund over, you know, decades. That's not their goal. Um, and so they kind of get you there and then and then you hit a cliff. And so, you know, we were early on this, this path of kind of the, the social innovation, social entrepreneurship, and we were always kind of driving to how to build a, a sustainable business model. And I think, there's a couple of different ways to go about this. You either stay on the nonprofit path, where essentially what you really need to do is work on, I think, your, your impact metrics. And so you, you become into the business of, for lack of a better word, selling impact metrics to foundations, uh, which is what they're in the business of funding. And, and to do that, you need to have like really irrefutable evidence, like randomized controlled trials, et cetera. Or you go the more social impact path, where you basically build out a business development team and try to sell your product or, or a version of your product and, and build a revenue model and that is possible but there's a handful of different things that can be challenging around that so we built at Ushahidi a uh, essentially what's called a value-added services model modeled off of, of WordPress really or automatic and you can imagine there what we were doing was you'd have you know the hosted version of the platform with extra features and functionality and, and support or you could have you know an entire, contract where you're doing essentially all of the work to host it, manage it, customize features and even programmatic work in partnership. And those those deals is what we kind of was the next phase of the organization which was doing a lot of the the sort of technological product development in the the sort of traditional development sector or humanitarian sector. So we would be doing doing projects or selling software essentially to you know, the Red Cross, to the UN, to um, to USAID projects, and some of those could be huge contracts uh, over periods of time, uh, where we were actually doing the work itself, like maybe running an election monitoring project, or, or something like that, or we'd be kind of selling the software and all of its value-added services to to like a, a an NGO. And and I think the hard thing in that sector was that the the service-providing system you know, you worked in, in, at Z-Click Fist and you were focused on sort of municipalities. We did venture a little into that area, had a couple of uh, contracts and deals, one with uh, Pierce County outside of Seattle. But um, but we just didn't, that wasn't our sweet spot, right? You know, people see, I think, see the word Ushahidi, they, you know, the instances and in the, in the versions of the the tool often used kind of more in globally. And so it was just not, not the right product market fit for us necessarily, even though, though we maybe could have gotten in there. Although I think we would have been, maybe in a lot more competition, well, not, but if that was the case. So we, we kind of learned how to serve this, this development sector and, and essentially you know, became what I was is service providers to the sector the way that most SaaS companies are, service providers to some sector. Uh, and I think one of the biggest challenges and something that I, I kind of spent a lot of time trying to get loud about is that the ability for the development sector, the traditional NGO humanitarian development sector to procure software um, and procure technology is, is very broken um, in the same way I, and that I think it is in in government as well, uh, and that was that was really challenging uh, long term. Even though we were, I think, serving a great product, often it was just the the challenges to to be able to to buy SaaS and get over what I call kind of the the technology for good sort of Valley of Death, which is taken from you know often people talk about it and kind of. The clean tech space, you know, how do you fund something enough to get over to the point where where solar is as cheap as coal, for instance, or something, which we're almost there, uh, or or perhaps there in, in many parts of the world. Yeah. And same thing in this this kind of nonprofit technology world, you got to be able to get to the point where you're you have a sustainable business that's running and can fund the core operations.
0: If you had a magic wand, how would you change that mm. German system or the overall funding system for tech nonprofits?
1: So for for tech driven nonprofits that are you know think of themselves in that kind of innovative social innovation, social entrepreneurship space, two things. So for for foundations funding into this space, the foundations have to look at it a lot more like like venture capital. And essentially, I think unfortunately, and this isn't always the case by any means. I think there's a lot of a lot of exceptions to this rule, but but I do I do hear this a lot and, and see it a lot. Too often triple bottom line can mean three times the work for one third the amount of money. And that and I think often it's because of the way money flows, right? And so, you know, folks in foundations or, or in procurement areas, they might look at it and say, hey, this isn't, hey, this isn't really our money. It's the foundation's money. It's someone else's money. I'm a grant manager. And and so there's just a lot of I can't afford to screw this up. Whereas obviously, you know, in the VC world, like everyone knows that nine out of 10 things are going to fail. Totally fine. That's expected. And so people are just make faster decisions. You know, I just kind of, well, you know, I get it. I raised a a for-profit round recently and I mean, the due diligence process is on those, not that they were just so much faster and allowed kind of the people to just get to work so much more quickly than, you know, times where I would spend, nine months doing grant applications and due diligence for, for, for funds and in, you know, procurement as well. Often when it comes back to, you know, taxpayer money, if it's through USAID or, or a state, any sort of state budget, I mean, there's just the amount of, amount of hurdles you have to jump there. And it it really does slow progress. The other thing that gets really hard there, right. Is like this, this split where you're, you're, your customer are the people you're serving, but they're not paying you. Whereas your uh, your client is the foundation and that's who's giving you the money. And And it's really hard sometimes. Sometimes that works fine, but sometimes those incentives are misaligned. And so the, the job I think uh, for the social entrepreneur in this case is to work really hard to keep those incentives aligned. Uh, and then like one of the last things I would say is I think there's there's a ton of money for sort of new ideas and very little money for sort of scaling proven ideas that generally what I found in the space, at least comparatively. Right. And the expectations are just much different. So a lot of folks to look at a a scaling grant will be a 500 K grant. I mean, in, as folks know, most, most of the time companies have to raise, I think, I think the number is like 20, for-profit companies, you know, serving the richest people in the world with the most dispensable income, you know, are raising $22 million before they get anything close to being in the black. Um, The idea that you could be doing something that's working on poverty alleviation, you know, some of the hardest problems in the world and get to scale and, and be financially sustainable with, you know, 500K, even $2 million. It's just not, it's just not feasible. I mean, the the reality is you, you really, some of these scaling grants need to be considerably larger.
0: Don't just listen, get engaged. I host a giving circle to support startup tech nonprofits. Why do they need support and why is it hard? Well, think about all of the challenges of a nonprofit startup where only 2% ever make it to more than 10 million in annual budget, and all of the challenges of a tech company in building a team, understanding users, figuring out what to build, and architecting the right product. So why does it matter? Well, think of the established large tech nonprofits that impact your life. Mozilla makes Firefox and other important internet infrastructure. Wikipedia collects and distributes knowledge, Code for America makes our government work better. Code.org and Khan Academy teaches us all. In healthcare, Medic Mobile powers living goods and other local community healthcare workers. So go to startupsforgood.com and click on Giving Circle to find out more. When you think about where there are massive budgets, I think about government. And you worked at USAID, if I understand correctly. So what did that experience do to inform your perspective here?
1: That's right, yeah. I was lucky enough to be part of the, the first class of presidential innovation fellows back in 2012, 2013. It was a, it was a really exciting program uh, about bringing technologists into, into the U.S. federal government. So we were out of the, the Office of Science Technology Policy, and I worked on open data. For, for USAID and for, for the global development sector. And, uh, and then stayed on to kind of be the, the first interim you know, chief data officer at USAID. I mean, some of my insights there as far as you know, making an impact. So first, I guess the first thing I would say is something that um, at the time, the US CTO, uh, a guy named Todd Park, who we were, uh, who was really in charge of this, this program, helped, you know, I helped create it. Uh, said and it, it stuck with me, which is that impact, particularly looking at it in the government, uh, it, or well, impact is a is a is a force equation. So, impact is equal to the the volume, the amount of the mass rather, the size of something times the velocity, and that the bigger something is, the the harder it is to turn. But if you can, um, and so we talked about now in government, said so the federal government, right, is is one of the biggest things in the world as you just said it's like one of the largest budgets there is so it's really hard to move it's really unwieldy but technology is one of the fastest things in the world so if you can bring technology and that velocity to that mass and 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 use technology to just move it even a little bit um, the potential impact is is huge just huge and and that really stuck with me because and and I think it's true and and my experience there is is that it is true it is a very it's unwieldy it's very hard to move but when you do it, it it can really change the lives of of millions uh if not billions of people so i mean one one example of that my focus was like i said was on was on open data and um at the time that did not mean that i was you know a brilliant engineer building anything it meant entirely you know the acts of of politics you know when i was running around saying open data uh, at the time you know uh, what the standard practice was was that pretty much everything in was was pdfs and, you know like what you know, when we said open data people were like oh but we you know we publish our 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 finances we we're we're very transparent about that it's required by congress it's it's here and i was like yeah but you know you said you guys 20 billion dollar more than 30, $30 billion dollar entity you know, you fund all these amazing programs and around the world. They're predominantly contracted out to the, to these other organizations who, who maintain all of that. But then you get back a, a PDF report. You know, I, I would often say, it's kind of like, it's kind of like a, a, the production house funding James Cameron to make Avatar. He gets to keep the movie and he hands you a black and white flipbook, getting <laughs> give, give him $2 billion for it. You know, it's like, come on, like you're, you're, you're the money just, you know, and, and, and some of it was just even, it's like, well, we don't even have the systems to take that data. Like, we receive everything over email. There's a 25 megabyte cap on it. All right, well, we got to figure that out. So, so how do we build something that just allows you to take back a, a huge data set? You know, obviously there's a lot of care around security of data and all that, and that's extremely important. But, uh, but generally, you got to, we got to be able to, you can see it, the tables are right there. Oh my God, all this amazing research was done but, but where is it? I'm, I'm just reading this, this PDF, uh, which is essentially modeled after, you know, at the time, it was just essentially modeled off of like a Dewey Decimal System library, right? You'd search the title of PDFs and, and that's what you could get uh, online from, from this incredible data resource. I mean, just to give you an idea, I mean, one of the programs was was, was paying people to go to almost every uh, market in uh, sub-Saharan Africa and, and check On a weekly basis, the change in price of food. I mean that that data set was so unbelievably powerful for understanding the potential for famine, the impact on poverty, right? And that was being done over like a 10-year period. And you just, you know, you had a PDF put out every year with the data. It was like, oh my gosh, if this was an API that people could access and like build stuff off of, what 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 could be done? So that's, that's what we focused on was, was just trying to, you know, it was basically just a war on PDFs uh, is what I said, but it was building out, you know, data.gov and getting data sets up there and putting them into API formats and and doing all of the infrastructure and plumbing to get that done as well as, you know, the policy work.
0: Right. Thank you for that. Now, going back to Ushahidi, I'm curious how you became CEO there from volunteer all the way up.
1: Yeah. I so I started off as volunteer, as I said, came in and worked on the business side of stuff, had an incredible team. And I I was then went went to work in this program in, in the White House and really enjoyed it. It was actually a, a big decision-making moment in my life at the end of that because you know, I Ushihidi and the leadership there were so kind to kind of i had been there for a year. They hired me and then I was like, Hey, I got this job in the, the White House. Was, I wasn't expecting it, like this fellowship, should I go for it? And I said, yeah, you know, go for it. We'll, we'll manage and then come on back. And uh, I said, that, that was just great leadership on their part. And at the end of it, right, though, they asked if I wanted to stay on and, and be the chief data officer at USAID. And I said, okay, I'll do it for six months. But you know, they wanted me to stay on longer, and, and which was an honor. And I had to kind of make this decision at the moment. And there were a few things that influenced me. I, you know, obviously, went back to a Shahidi, but. There are a few parts that 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 influenced me to make that decision. One was the fact that you know, it's a it's a trite, overused quote, but it was in my head and it was so appropriate at the time. But you know the Steve Jobs quote of "Wouldn't you rather be a pirate than join the Navy," and like literally being in meetings with with, with a bunch of ex Navy, and then the Ushahidi's whole sort of uh, branding was around pirates at the time, and it just kind of kept running through my head. And and the but but the real reason was that you know I often felt like. Like the work I was working on in government was extremely important. The impact there was incredible. I'd kind of done what I, what I'd set out to first do, but you know, a lot of it felt like I almost felt a little bit like an imposter, like, you know, that the government, it's like, you know, the best refs and the best coaches were former players. And and I felt like I hadn't really been a player enough yet. Uh, I hadn't actually played the game well enough and that, you know, I'd have time to kind of go back and, and do go back into government if that's what called me again later in my life. But I need to kind of go back into the startup world, into the the smaller company world, and and and, ha- and be a little more of an operator again. Uh, and then the last thing was that was was that Ushahidi was was working on in brick at the time, and that product just just had got me so excited. So for all of those reasons, uh, decided to go back to Ushahidi. And then the last one was that was that Eric who well, was one of the co-founders of Ushahidi was, you know, working on, on brick. And it said, you know, Hey, Nat, I'm, I'm going to go off and uh decide we're going to roll, roll brick out and I'm going to, I'm going to be the CEO of brick. Would, would you want to come and, and take over my role here at Ushahidi, which was, which was kind of COO at the time, be the next, the next phase of leadership here. And that was an offer I couldn't, couldn't refuse. So did that. And then, yeah, eventually was asked, you know, by the board to, to take over the CEO role. I did for for about three years, and so that that was kind of my journey over I guess almost almost over eight years.
0: And one of the previous CEOs had some controversy, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. We had a an incident. One of the CEOs was the CEO previous to me was let go by the board for acts of gross misconduct, where uh, he he said some unbelievably inappropriate things to uh, one of the the people working at Ushidi at the time, there was an investigation, he was, he was removed. And I, I really helped kind of then lead the organization through that really tough time. Um, I mean, I think one of the toughest times in our, in our history, and there were definitely times where we had, you know, weren't making payroll and, you know, it was like, are, are we going to make it out? But this, this was, was, this was definitely the hardest thing that Ushidi uh, worked through to see this kind of, uh, this pain, uh, internally in the team, this, uh, gross misconduct conducted by someone in leadership to, to someone on the team.
0: And how did you heal and refocus the team and rebuild? How did you do that?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll say, look, I, I feel like I've had a really blessed career done a lot of, a lot of things. The thing I'm most proud of in, in my life is that through that time, no one on the Oshidi team quit or well, other than the, the person that was hurt, uh, which happened previously, but through the, the time of, of trying to heal and me taking over, no one, no one quit. And that, that meant the world that we stuck together by each other and listened to each other. And that was really the main thing. How, how do we get through that? The other thing is, I mean, no found, no, no funders dropped us either. No, no clients did either. And the biggest part of it was how wow. we did that. Wow. <laughs> like, yeah, wow. yeah, and I mean, and for what it's worth, I mean, there there was a very active online campaign, you know, against against the organization at the time, pressuring people to do that. And, and the truth is, I was on the phone just for, you know, I don't know, eighteen hours a day for, for like three three months, essentially, and listening, letting people talk and and telling them what was happening and and how we were handling it as an organization. And a lot of this is out there if you want to go read the blog posts and things, folks. That you know of what we publish and in, in tried to be very, very transparent through the process, while also adhering to the laws. Now, honestly, we were balancing two different like legal structures, uh, both Kenya and the U.S. And and no, you know, no one on our board had gone through a situation like this. Now it's actually something that we all feel like we we learned a lot. The way I did that was we had a lot of internal team, um, I called kind of listening sessions let people speak their truth, did a lot of practices where, you know, we would go around a circle and let people just talk for as long as they wanted. And it was not a debate. It was not an argument. You could not interrupt this person. They had the mic and they had the moment to say what they, they wanted. And we sat there and listened. And then we, as a, as a leadership, I talked to everyone on that team, probably, for two to three hours, one-on-one every week. And it was hard. You know, I felt the hardest part was for, honestly, for the women on the team who were being really attacked online for not quitting. And I just really felt for them because that it's really unfair. I felt because this is an organization that obviously does amazing work. And, you know, I think people get kind of riled up online and, and the idea that the actions of one person, you know, should be that the rest of everyone should, you know, should have to suffer for that. uh, I felt was really unfair. So we worked really hard to just communicate uh, over and over again, be as transparent as possible and listen predominantly. And then um, yeah, try to try to communicate the decisions and changes moving forward, got back to work, you know, building tools that help people uh, raise their voice. Those that were those marginalized people raise their voice.
0: And the organization was really prolific in spinning off a number of other organizations, whether they were for-profit or not. And I'm curious if you think that was something intentional or something that happened because you had creative people who were interested in starting things.
1: You know, it, the answer to that is, well, the answer is yes. It's it's had a, a great history of spinning off um, some pretty successful and cool things. And I think, yeah, the the reason why is both. So on the one hand, absolutely, would hire and encourage people who were just excited by building things and being creative and being innovative, and that was that was a huge part of our culture. I mean, like our annual retreats, we would always have sort of a, a a hacker type project that you know, and we'd have time built out away from sort of strategy sessions to just kind of go and. Work on the workbench uh, and work on something, right? Like it, you know, it was, it was a big part of 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 what made us uh, us. And it was like, hey, let's let's see, you know, what are the problems that we're seeing, and and then how do we go fix them? Like when you see a problem, you go and fix it, and that that led to some some really neat things. So it's part part of the partly that and then and then we built you know over time we built policies about like what exactly counted as an incubation project what exactly you know was was a shahidi project and what was you know other people just working on stuff on their own that was adjacent and had to kind of clarify a lot of that yeah and then you know and then i think the last part of it was is a little back to this thing that we were talking about earlier which i think i don't know i have i've mixed feelings on which is around sort of the the incentive structures in the funding environment for for new ideas and so versus kind of continuing to to bet on the 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 things that work yeah i was uh, very transparent i mean like sometimes you know you'd you'd be like hey this this cruciate platform that's serving tons of people and, and helping tons of people well just asking for more money for it it's not weren't you know fund funders will kind of be like ah well we funded that before et etc so you'd be like well we're doing version three Uh, And we're, and these are the cool new features that are going to be part of it. And like, or we're going to rebrand it and it's going to do this or, you know, and, and you kind of have to come up with new ways to make it seem exciting. And, and obviously also technology moves forward and a lot of those things got built and, and were really impactful. And, and that is what you are indeed doing. But you know, that, that, that also created this incentive structure to always be kind of thinking about the new thing or a new product. Versus double bet, you know. I think like when I took, you know, as you mentioned, and it was one of the times I kind of came in in leadership, there was a point where I think we had, we would we were a team of thirty people with five products, each with like a budget of like a quarter of a million dollars to a half a <laughs> million dollars or something, and then the one Ushahidi core product with like a million dollar budget or something. I, I might not have that exactly right, but the point is right? For anyone that's developed product is like, that's totally untenable. Like that's not, you can't build a product for a quarter million dollars and like scale it globally. And so, you know, one of the things we do, we just killed three of them. We're like, this is not, you can't do it. Like it's okay, done. We're we're, we're consolidating. Like we're going to bet on the thing that's a being used by tens of thousands of people right now. And then we're going to have one new idea that we're going to, that we think has the biggest legs and that's what's going to go. Those are really hard decisions, you know, because some of the other ones were, were great ideas. And eventually, you know, we would go around and say, oh, look, someone else built that. How cool. We had that idea four years ago. I can't believe that someone built that now. But you're like, well, that's because it was a good idea. We just didn't have the resources to do it. But yeah, I, I, it's one of the most fun parts about working there. And she's gone on to spin out amazing things from like, you know, brick being, I think, one of the most successful and famous ones to the standby volunteer task force. The, the women the, the the women on the engineering team at Ushahidi built akira chicks along with a bunch of other folks uh, the iHub spun out of Ushahidi and a lot of that was yeah just the team saying hey we we need a place to bring people together and work in, in Nairobi hey we need you know internet to work better let's let's try to solve that and yeah, it was pretty inspiring
0: yeah and kettle too spun out right yeah
1: yeah uh, I mean it wasn't technically a spin out, um, but Uh, it was definitely part of that what talking about in earlier in that disability for Ushahidi to really support the development and and iterations of new ideas and so uh, no doubt you know so Kettle is is the the company I run today uh, and co-founded and it was a uh, essentially you know obviously it's it's very much born out of my my experience at Ushahidi and the other work that I've done before And, and essentially I mean Kettle is a uh, we are an AI powered reinsurance company. We um, use AI to do better actuarial modeling uh, and understand crisis and risk and then uh, write uh, reinsurance, which is insurance for insurance companies uh, essentially insurance for big cataclysmic or cat- catastrophic events not just kind of like you know your your roof leaking or you getting robbed which, uh, but we're talking, giant wildfires, hurricanes. And what Kettle does is we we provide insurance and use AI to, uh, for for those big events, which, as you can imagine, are, are increasing. I mean, our mission is really to, to help better protect people from the increasing risk caused by climate change. And what we've seen is a 3x increase in catastrophes over the last 10 years, billion-dollar catastrophes over the last 10 years. And I've just witnessed that at Ushahidi, you know, just over and over again, being building one of the largest open source software platforms for crisis response in the world, the, this increase in, in hurricanes and in fires and in, in these other climate change related catastrophes. And so I, I set about trying to um, think of solutions for that. And what Ushahidi really allowed me to do is... We, we, we innovate, you know, we iterated on lots of different ideas of of how to solve for that, a different concept. We built a couple of different products in, in sort of early stages and alpha stages and tested them. They weren't in the insurance space. They were sort of more in the direct mutual aid kind of world. it was specifically to help people help each other in, in their, in their neighborhoods and crises. And then, yeah. And then when I knew I was kind of ready to, to move on and start my own thing, I was able to to support and, and to kind of a transition period where I trained, trained Angela to be the next uh, CEO and executive director uh, over that time period and, and was able to kind of work on this new idea, Kettle, to which eventually, well, at that point, eventually became Kettle. At that time, it was, you know, as you know, all, all sorts of startup things. I went through 300 bad ideas before uh, before we got to what I, what I I what I do believe and hope is a good one.
0: And when you say a good one, how did you judge whether it was good?
1: well yeah so I mean to give you an idea, we were we were working on evacuation insurance so again it was kind of which is very similar I essentially I mean, part of what happened when I we were working on these things and I I just became obsessed with insurance and I'd actually been obsessed with insurance for the last like five years and that's because when you work on big open data at the in the government and then you know you're in, and trying to you're working with data scientists and getting data into, into data scientists' hands. And then on the other hand, you're working on it for humanitarian response, for crisis response. You're working on crisis response day in and day out. When I was in the government, Sandy hit. And so I lived at FEMA for three days working on, on supporting people and, and that response. And I, and I just came to realize that that insurance is this you know, really beautiful, elegant solution that to, to crisis right and that, that what is it or is it essentially it's it's all of us saying hey we'll 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 put in a little bit of money and whoever gets hurt we got your back you know we'll, we'll make you whole and if it's me this year great and you know and uh, well it's not great it's terrible but like great that i get to be you know taken care of and 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 and, and made whole and if it's one of you i'll i'll, I'll pay my little piece towards that I thought it was just this really beautiful thing that's terribly run with incentives kind of in in a lot of the wrong directions. And then the other thing I noticed, right, was that, you know, these crises would hit. And that first 48 hours is extremely important. That first two weeks for saving lives, if you're you're measuring saving lives saved, there's nothing more important than the work the first responders do. And that, cause that's, that's really where it happens. And that, that was a lot of what Ushahidi focused on was, was those first couple weeks of, of response, making sense of the chaos and trying to, you know, help, help save lives in, the, in that wake of a crisis. But then, you know, essentially the news feed moves on, the news cycle moves on, the donations start to dry up right after the first couple weeks. And then what's left, right? What's left is essentially communities. And people and their insurance companies for years. And and I thought of it as a graph, right? As sort of this, you know, there's, there's this spike, this graph of sort of suffering over time. And there's this real big spike at the beginning, but then it, it, it kind of goes down. But there's this long period of time where it's, you know, there's still suffering being... Being caused, you know, people lose their jobs, their homes aren't rebuilt. I think it's like forty percent of claims in from Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico still haven't been paid out, and that the area under the, the curve of the long tail of suffering after the first couple of weeks, you know, might be just as big as the, the area under you know the big spike at the beginning, and so I, uh, and that that the the only real solution out there is is is, is insurance for, for this long tail. It's also just at the intersection of kind of the stuff that matters to me, humanitarian work, climate change, and, and, and and technology and, and, and data. I got totally obsessed and people thought I was crazy and I didn't have any background in insurance. So I was like trying to figure out what I could do. I felt kind of like a fraud, but, you know, kind of just kept learning more and more and eventually met some people in the industry and said, uh, you are now my, my co-founders in this business who are brilliant. Asked them to teach me everything they knew and they were advisors. And after about a, about a year ago now said, Hey, hey you guys want to uh, quit your jobs and your big fancy public private sector company like jobs, high paying jobs and uh, do a startup with me. And I just feel very blessed that they said yes. And here we are. So that was, that's what kettle is. I know your question though was how did I know it was a good idea? I had to give a little background on what it is to kind of be able to answer that question. But what we are essentially doing is, is as I said, using AI to try to understand risk. If particularly, we started working on wildfires in California. And, and the way that we got to understand it was a good idea is like, I think, any kind of classic product market fit thing. Um, we started having people co- uh, come to us you know, and and say that they, they wanted this. So one example of that is we, we hadn't launched... Uh, we kind of just started pitching investors a little bit. One of the brokers in the space learned heard of us I, through through somebody I don't even know reached out on LinkedIn, got on the phone with us and said, "Hey, we we have a hundred million dollars in premium that we need to place. Um, we essentially we have a hundred million dollars that we are trying to broker of of insurers needing reinsurance for wildfire in California, and we can't get anyone to cover it." how quickly can you get to market? We'll, 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 we're, as soon as you can get there, we got it for you. And you're like, oh my God, that that's product market fit dream, um, right? Someone tracked you down and said, if you get market faster, I can write you a $100 million check. That was that was the beginning of um, you know, really saying, oh, wow, we, we've got something here.
0: And how do you connect your big picture mission and goals that you talked about to the day-to-day work that you're doing uh, when you're talking with investors and when you're talking with employees or, you know, trying to recruit people to join the team.
1: That's right. Right. It's like, the, who would have expected, right. That reinsurance might be a, um, a impactful solution for climate change. I get it. Right. It's uh, I mean, that's one of the things that got me so excited about working on this industry is that, you know, I, I was definitely one of those people that, you know, thought insurance companies were, we're all, we're all terrible. You know, I think the key way that we do that, you know, is, is a few. One is to remind people the mission over and over again, which is to balance risk in a changing climate. And then to really, you know, bring it back to that impact into that, to that mission on the team. I like to say that we're, we're the safety net below the safety net. That's, that, that's what we do. You know, is, is, I think mean, that's the important part is to remind people that, yeah, while well, we're talking about. Whatever this quota share deal is, or dealing with this kind of big, uh, every industry right has its own acronyms and its own its own lingo, and and reinsurance is absolutely no different. When you're you know, you're stuck in the weeds there, trying to figure out some sort of deal or structure, you know, reminding us, like, hey, what's this really for? And it's for when that, for lack of a better term, act of God comes through, and, and the wildfires take out a whole town, or 50,000 homes at once there, there's a pot of money that can really help people rebuild because if there isn't, well, then what's going to happen to those folks? Right. And that's, that's the impact you're really making is uh, making that sort of financial safety net there to let people who, who get hurt from these, these acts of God, whether it's a hurricane or a fire, um, which like I said, sadly, or there's only more and more of that they're protected and that our communities are protected,
0: right? And how do you think about moral hazard in insurance, particularly related to climate change?
1: Uh, and by that you mean, well, there's a couple different ways living, of looking at it. So living places
0: right. where yeah, there's more threats or um, making other lifestyle choices.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's a couple. One is there's a couple answers to that. What, I mean, one is that it's hard to do this, but that you got to kind of let. M- Markets operate as sort of fluidly as possible, and so when you when you have huge subsidies, it's it's good for the people there, but it also means that it's it's a it's not a really fair reality. Um, And so, like one example of that is like the national flood program is is a really important way of of helping people, you know, it's government money. I'm, I'm all for government supporting, you know, and in, in using insurance you know, as, as a mechanism to support people. I think that is one of the key roles of government. However, it also dramatically reduces the, the reality of the price. And the truth is that, you know, home prices or home, home insurance should cost a lot more in areas that are just of a whole lot higher risk, uh, whether that's from hurricanes, uh, you know, in Florida, or, um, you know, or where I, I live in, I live in, I live in Berkeley. And the truth is my, my home insurance should be a lot more. And that's because in the last five years, the fundamental reality of fire has changed. It is now riskier than it was five years ago. We got to see some of these, these, these home insurance prices go up, um, in areas that are riskier and, and what's going to happen if we don't otherwise is that if, 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 if someone like Kettle doesn't come along to kind of understand the risk and what we're seeing right now is people are just, just raising the price across everyone where they can or they're only raising it where policy will allow them but not where risk really is, right? It's not, it's not a reality. Today. It's just like where, where they're able to based upon the regulators. And that's not fair because what should happen is if you're in a higher risk area, well, the price should be higher there and what we'll see is just this kind of equal increase across everybody. And that's not really the way it's supposed to work. You know, if you're in a higher risk, more you should pay a little bit more. If you're in a lower risk area, um, you should pay less, but we all pay in. And then that's the job of the insurance uh, actuary, uh, or in our case, our, our machine learning models to, to understand where that risk is and then balance that risk correctly.
0: Great, well, tell us about Kettle as a much bigger scaled company what do you see as the vision for impact and how it how it helps people
1: yeah i mean really what we're trying to build is the the best safety net um, the most effective and largest safety net uh, in the world for protecting people from increasing climate change risks and so what that looks like over time is essentially uh, two things one is Obviously, growing. If you're going to reinsure against huge catastrophic risks, you need to have huge balance sheets to be able to, to cover that. And we won't get deep into it, but it doesn't mean that it's just our balance sheet. There's lots of ways that this is done where, where folks are pulling money from different places. Very much like you can imagine, a, a VC doesn't just invest all the partners' monies, they have LPs, right? And they invest uh, that money as well as often some of their own. And uh, because there are the strategic the best placed folks to understand where where new opportunities are and how to support entrepreneurs, similar, uh, we have a similar sort of model, right? And so, and then from an impact perspective, I mean, the other thing we're trying to really do is bring technology to this industry, you know, that ha- hasn't had a lot of, of technological innovation uh, to be frank. I mean, the, the reinsurance industry predominantly still uses like a stochastic modeling, which is a hundred year old tool set. And, and and we've seen some some exciting innovation sort of in the primary markets, or using satellite imagery and things to understand risks and roofs and things like this. But but I haven't seen a lot kind of backed in uh, into the reinsurance area. And then and then the second part is that you know there's just classic kind of innovators dilemma. There's a, there's a lot of bureaucracy. And so what we're hoping to be able to really do is one make make every make the models more accurate. The more accurate you are. The better predictions you have, the the lower your prices can be because you have lower loss ratios. They're more they're more precise, and then you don't need quite as much a buffer to, to be able to um, make sure you have enough funds to pay out if you were wrong or if it was a bad year. Uh, and then the second is just to make to make the industry work more effectively and fluidly, cutting out the fat uh, essentially, or or um, and being able to p- place this risk where in the the place it where folks want it. And there's, we can dive deeper into this, but uh, essentially being able to do that more intelligently and more quickly means that it's not changing hands sometimes, you know, 10 times before it ends up somewhere. And each one of those folks are taking a cut, right? And so uh, if you can, if you can do this effectively, it makes everyone, it just, it'll, it can reduce prices. It can better protect people and make the industry kind of return to its, its former days of a better return on capital. I mean, so essentially because, you know, if you're, if you're an industry, this job is to, to underwrite and support underwrite catastrophic risk. Well, when you've had a 3x increase, like I mentioned earlier, in, in billion dollar catastrophes over the last year, that's resulted in a, in a 60% drop in, in return on equity for the reinsurance industry you know, which was used to earning 10 to 15% returns for decades, right? Until, until really 10, 15 years ago. And so the only, the only real answer there is is you got to bring technology into it to make things more effective and more accurate to be able to kind of return both those returns, drop prices and better protect people uh, over the long run.
0: Well, thank you so much for that. Thank you for coming onto the show. Where can people find out more about you and about Kettle?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Right, Miles, thanks for having me. This, is, this has been a blast. I love I love talking about this stuff with you, and I appreciate your questions today. To find out more about me, you can you can find me in a couple of different places. My my Twitter is at nat n a t p Manning. You can find out more about Kettle at our Kettle, as in all of us together. A u o u r kettlecom uh, uh, You can read a little more about me and my on my website natmanning.com.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much. If you liked what you heard today on the podcast, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. The reviews help others find us. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and you can follow me on LinkedIn. Be sure to visit our website, startupsforgood.com. That's startupsforgood, all run together, no spaces, .com. If you were inspired today and want to join our online community or our giving circle, please do so on our website.